Thank you, worship team, and thank you, Cassidy, for that word. Praise God, we are not victims. We are victors in Christ Jesus. Yeah, put your hands together. What a great word. A victim walks around cowering around in defeat and despair. They're looking over their shoulder. A victim walks with the fearful disposition. They walk with the timid disposition. They look back over their shoulder and they're grieved. They, they look ahead and their, their hearts are filled with sadness because they can't hope anymore. They're, they're victims because of what somebody said about them. They feel victims because of what somebody did to them. Or they feel victims because of their own failures and stumbled. But through the cross of Jesus Christ, none of us here have to be a victim. Not a moment longer. Not a moment longer. We are victors through the cross of Christ in the empty tomb. So if you have your Bibles, open it to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. And Philippians chapter 3 is really talking about how to tap in to our victorious right as children of God. How to walk in the fullness of freedom that was purchased for us by the blood of Christ. Philippians chapter 3. And thank you guys so much for praying for my mom. All the outpours of prayers and encouragement has really touched my family's heart. But she's back home now, and she's doing good. And thank you so much for your prayers for that. So how many of you graduated valedictorian? <laughs> I can put my hand down. I, some did graduate valedictorian. Some graduated summa cum laude. Some of us just graduated, thank the Lordy, right? That was my status. Uh, some didn't graduate at all. And what we've done was we've taken this, this idea of um, status and accolades in terms of our uh, graduation, and we've translated that into our relationship with Jesus Christ and our um, thought process of how we graduate into heaven. For example, let me explain. We can uh, break this thought pro process down by labeling it as the doctrine of human achievement. The doctrine of human achievement. And that is a far cry from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And the true gospel of Jesus Christ can be defined like this. The gospel of divine accomplishment. Now think about these two statements. There's the doctrine of human achievement. And then there's the gospel of of divine accomplishment. Now, if we had an icon over here to symbolize the doctrine of human achievement, we would have a ladder. And the idea would be, how high can you climb in this doctrine of human achievement to hopefully appease God, to, to earn some moral accolades and achievements so that you can burst your way into heaven with flying colors or at least just kind of crawl in on hands and knees. For example, in this thought process of the doctrine of human achievement, we would look at Mother Teresa and we'd say, wow, now she's the valedictorian of Christianity. And she blew right through the gates of heaven and they said, welcome, you belong here. You are the valedictorian. You have graduated into heaven with honors. And then we would look at people like Jeffrey Dahmer, Adolf Hitler, Osama bin Laden, and we would say, well, they obviously didn't graduate at all and their etern eternity is a is a far cry from Mother Teresa's who graduated with flying colors and we're probably somewhere in between the, the, uh, the Hitler's and the Mother Teresa's and maybe we're not the valedictorian of Christianity but at least perhaps we crawled in on our hands and feet or we will one day or at least we hope so. That's the doctrine of human achievement. And that pretty much summarizes every single religion in the world besides true Jesus-centered biblical, the Apostle Paul um, uh, style gospel. The gospel 
or the doctrine of human achievement summarizes every single religion in the world. It is all about what we do for God so that we hopefully please him enough to let us at least crawl into heaven one day. And know that the, the doctrine of human achievement, whose icon is a ladder, and the true gospel of divine accomplishment. And if we had an icon for this thought process, for this theology, it would simply be a cross. Because in the doctrine of human achievement, it's all about what we do for God. But in the gospel of divine accomplishment, it is all about what God has done for us through the cross of Jesus Christ. And a person is born again. They are a Christian. And they are clothed in the very righteousness of God. When they stop climbing the ladder of divine achievement and they simply repent of their sins and humbly trust in the gospel of divine accomplishment and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And at that moment, they're clothed in the very righteousness of God. Therefore, we only go into heaven one way, and that is clothed with the very righteousness of God. And if we don't enter into heaven clothed in the very righteousness of God, we do not enter whatsoever. And this idea of, of, of the doctrine of human achievement and the gospel of divine accomplishment are worlds apart. There is an eternal, there is an infinite and eternal chasm separating these two polar opposite thought processes. Because in climbing the ladder on the, 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 the doctrine of human achievement, we enter into heaven on our own merit. And in reality, nobody will. But through placing our faith in the work that Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, we enter into heaven through his own forgiveness and his own righteousness. And again, if we don't enter into heaven through the very righteousness of God that we've received as a gift by trusting in his work on the cross, none of us will enter at all. And if you are trusting in just, just an ounce, just an ounce of your human achievement to engage this relationship with God rather than divine accomplishment, his work poured out for you on the cross, it's going to manifest itself in a couple of ways. One, you will eventually get hard-hearted and callous and judgmental toward people around you. Because somehow you'll feel like you've achieved enough. But the thing is, in climbing this ladder on the doctrine of human achievement, we seldom compare. No, we never compare our righteousness to that of Jesus Christ. We only compare our righteousness to those of perhaps Adolf Hitler or maybe the, the black sheep of the family or the most wayward of your cousins and say, well, I'm doing better than them, so I'll probably get into heaven. And so if we feel confident enough in our own righteousness to enter into heaven, it's just a matter of time, and you're probably already there, that your heart is hardened and prideful. Or it will manifest itself in the other extreme, and you'll have fear and timidity and a sense of anxiousness and anxiety in your heart so that you think that, that, that God doesn't love you. How could he? Because you felt so hard on this doctrine of human achievement. So as we pick up in Philippians chapter 3, this has been a series on joy. We write, finally, my brothers, 
Rejoice in the Lord is what we read. Rejoice in the Lord, Paul says. And he said, it's no problem for me to write the same thing to you. Rejoice in the Lord. And as we begin unpacking Philippians chapter 3, we see that the foundation, the basis of our joy is to get off of this ladder of, divine, of, of human achievement and to humbly place our faith in the work of Christ, of, of divine accomplishment on the cross of Jesus. And from there, the joy of the Lord will spring forth from our heart. Rejoice in the Lord. And then Paul then begins uh, unpacking uh, verse 2 with some really serious warnings. And know this about the Apostle Paul who wrote a third of the New Testament. Know this about Paul. Paul reserved his fiercest, his most furious, his harshest, even his most sarcastic words for a group of people who would try to influence, manipulate, and through motivations of fear, cause people to stop placing their faith in Christ's accomplishment for them on the cross, and instead to once again begin placing their faith in their own human achievement on this reward system. Let's look at some of this language in verse 2. Look out for those dogs. Look out for those evildoers. And look out for those mutilators, mutilators of the flesh. Now, something that you need to know about the Apostle Paul is that he would start churches, he would go to the next town, he would start churches, he would go back through, try to visit some churches, he'd write letters to churches. He loved these churches like his children. And some say that Paul's thorn in the flesh was that when he would leave a church, there would be a group of people who would come behind him called Judaizers. They were the kind of guys that had this great leadership stature. They had this, this, this great influence. They had this great elegance. I mean, somebody, a church could be going from 10 years, and these guys could come out of nowhere, and then all of a sudden people just kind of look at them like deers in the headlights and in the sense of awe and wonder because they had this leadership aura or statue about them. And then an issue comes up, and all eyes kind of out of fear or intimidation really defer to these new guys and they were the Judaizers and they had this great influence on people and so they would go into an area after Paul would start a church and then they would begin uh, developing relationships with people and once they developed the relationships and they had this trust then they would just you know have a conversation with a group of people and it would be very casual and they would say you're born again right you're a Christian and they would say yeah yeah we're Christians and these leaders would say Praise God you're a Christian. Man, that's good to hear. I'm so, so glad you're a Christian. That's awesome. That's awesome. So do you guys, uh, have you been baptized? Yeah, 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 we've been baptized. Good, good, good. I'm glad to hear it. Praise God. Praise God for that. So, um, so have you been circumcised? Circumcised? No, Paul didn't say anything about being circumcised. Paul didn't say, that Paul. You know, that's just like Paul. No, I'm. I'm not going to gossip, I'm not going to slander, I'm not going to slander. That's just like Paul. You know, they're saying things like this about Paul back in Jerusalem, that he's leaving out half the gospel. You weren't circumcised? Did you know that Jesus, Jesus is your Lord and Savior, right? And they would say, yeah. And they'd say, did you know that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day when he was a little boy according to the law of Moses? Are you greater than Jesus? Well, no, of course I'm not greater than Jesus. But Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day and you're not. What about, what about Abraham? Abraham was circumcised. What about Moses? Moses was circumcised. And you're not circumcised? And they said, well, no, I haven't really thought about it. Paul didn't mention it. We didn't think it was that big a deal. And they would say, gosh, if you really want to be in Christ, then don't you need to do all of the Old Testament laws? And so then they would coerce people into getting circumcised. 
and not only circumcised, but they would coerce people into placing confidence in the Old Testament law. And know this, and you think, well, what about the Ten Commandments? I mean, that's a good point, right? What about the Ten Commandments? Don't we have to continue to doing these things in order to go into heaven? But understand this about the Ten Commandments commandments not even a deep reading just a casual reading just a glance gloss over casual reading of romans hebrews galatians or even here in philippians and many other places in the new testament just a casual reading of the new testament we understand and even a casual reading of the old testament we understand that not one person ever was saved justified made right declared righteous christian or heaven bound by upholding any of the ten commandments because in reality nobody ever upheld one of the ten commandments not one You say, well, I haven't killed anybody. Have you not? Jesus said in Matthew 5, if you're even angry with your brother, then you've murdered. Well, I I haven't committed adultery. Have you not? Jesus said in Matthew 5, if you so much as look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. We can go through all 10 commandments and realize that we've all broken every single one of them, probably every single day. Not one person has ever, ever, not ever been declared righteous and been heaven bound by upholding the 10 commandments because nobody's done it. All the Ten Commandments were designed to do was twofold. One, to kind of provide a bumper for God's people so that they wouldn't self-destruct until the time of the Messiah was born who could remove sins and give us the Holy Spirit to give us a new heart. And second, the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament moral law was designed to help us realize that we're a sinner who needs a Savior and to get us uh, to, to dismount this ladder of of human achievement and humbly bow before the cross of Christ and place our faith in what Christ and Christ alone has done for us. So Paul says of these manipulators and influencers who draw people from faith in Christ to faith in themselves, and he says, look out for these dogs. Now in our day and age, dogs, we can have cute puppies, right? I even officiated a a wedding for a friend, and one of his groomsmen, believe it or not, was his dog. (laughs) The dog had a little tuxedo, and the whole ceremony, I have a picture of it, the whole ceremony, the dog was in line with the groomsmen on his hind feet, perfectly still. Now that's pretty awesome, right? Well, they didn't have pets like that in this day and age. Dogs were akin to a pack of wolves. That's what they were. They were a pack of wolves. In fact, I took Spartacus to the dog park recently, and he's a German shepherd, and he got attacked by a pit bull. So I've learned if you're ever in Vegas and you're going to put some money on either a pit bull or a German shepherd, you probably ought to put your money on the pit bull. So this pit bull attacked my German shepherd. It was pretty brutal. So I just started kicking the snot out of this pit bull. And my, my German shepherd got away from it. It was in the lake. The pit bull went after my German shepherd. I went after the pit bull. It was quite an ordeal. It was, it was traumatic from our side. For the pit bull side, it had the time of its life. And... That's what Paul is saying. He's like, watch out for these dogs. I mean, this is what they do. This is who they are. They're divisive. They devour. They, they, they divide. They want to rip apart this church. Watch out for them. They're a pack of wolves. And then he goes on to say, and look out for those evildoers. The people who are influencing others to try to en- engage God, experience God on the basis of their own human achievement are not good workers, just the opposite. They're evildoers. And then he gets sarcastic when he said, beware of those mutilators of the flesh, those who think that you need to be circumcised in order to be declared righteous. They're simply mutilators of the flesh. And in writing on this exact same issue in the book of Galatians, Paul goes so far to say, I wish that they would go the whole way and simply emasculate themselves. 
Because everything that they're trying to get you to do in order to be made right with God is digressing. Because this ladder of human achievement is a one-way path to hell. And not one person will ever be declared righteous, experience God, go to heaven, or be free from their sins through this ladder of human achievement. If anybody could experience God through the ladder of human achievement, then Christ died for nothing. The cross was useless. So then, Paul shifts gears. And he says, you want to place confidence in the flesh? You want to look at somebody who has reason to place confidence in the flesh? Look at me. I, above any of you, have reason to place confidence in the flesh. And he goes on to unpack his resume. This is Paul's spiritual resume. His religious resume, rather. And he said, for we are the circumcision who worship the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence. Did you hear that? No confidence in the flesh. Not we mostly trust in Christ and partly trust in ourselves. Not even we 90% trust in the work of Christ and we only 10% trust in ourselves. Or we 99% trust in Christ and only 1% trust in ourselves. Paul said, no, we put no confidence in the flesh. None. Our acceptance to God, our right to pray, our authority to pray, Our confidence that we're going to heaven is based 100% on the work of Christ on the cross. And we've humbly received that. And this is our confidence. And he said, but you want to look at somebody who has reason to place confidence in the flesh? Let me unpack my resume for you. And then Paul begins, if his resume had three sections to it, the first section would be his position. He said, look at me. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and Paul studied at the feet of Gamaliel, which would be the equivalent of, I received my, my MBA from Harvard or my law degree from Harvard. I have great reason to place confidence in the flesh. Paul spoke probably seven language. He's, languages. He was very much an intellect. He was afforded Roman citizenship. Even as a child, he was afforded countless privileges, and he took these privileges and seized every opportunity. So after his position, the next section on his resume would be his achievements. And he goes on to say, as to the law of Pharisee, that for us would be one and the same as saying, I was a United States, a United States senator. When we read the word Pharisee, we look at that in our day and day and looking at in hindsight with these guys and the conversations they had with Jesus, and we just think they're, you know, a bunch of bozos and, and hypocrites. But in reality, these guys, uh, they were the, 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 the U.S. senators of the day. They, they uh, it, it enjoyed the favor of the people. People looked at them with a sense of awe, like we would look at professional athletes. He said, I was a Pharisee. And not just a Pharisee, he was exceeding above all of his companions as a Pharisee. In terms of of comparing himself to his contemporaries, he was younger, sharper, more ambitious, more advanced than any of his contemporaries. And as to zeal, and then he begins unpacking his power. Not only did he have privilege, and not only did he have achievements, but he had power. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. This was the issue to deal with in, in the day. This was the highly politicized. This was the highly volatile issue. And Saul of Tarsus, before he changed his name to Paul, was given the papers and given full 
full reign and how to deal with this issue of this outbreak of Christianity. And as to zeal, look at the authority, look at the power that I had persecuting the church. Now, what about upholding the law? He said, as to righteousness of the law, under the law, I was blameless. And Paul unpacked his resume. And he said, if anybody climbed high on this ladder of human achievement, I climbed higher. But then what happened to this guy named Saul of Tarsus? This Pharisee of Pharisees, this highly intellectual, ambitious person who was blameless in the law. Well, he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, a blinding light. And for the first time in Saul of Tarsus' life, he stopped comparing himself to everybody else, and he got a glimpse of the holiness of God, and he realized that his, what he thought, his resume was by no means a mountain of righteousness. His resume wasn't even an anthill of righteousness. In fact, he realized when he compared himself to Jesus Christ, his righteousness and achievements, they were, uh, they, they were a canyon of sinfulness and brokenness and waywardness and rebellion against God. And he would not bust through the gates of heaven as the spiritual valedictorian. He wouldn't even crawl through on his hands and knees. His eternity was going to be far different. Because he had no righteousness when compared to the holiness of God. Now let's look at your resume. What is on your resume? I mean, you've gone to church. You've, you've, perhaps you stopped drinking, and good job on that. But... You, you just start stacking them up, and, and you, you, you maybe, you maybe you, you, you've been a good dad. Hey, that's awesome. Maybe, maybe, you've, maybe you've been a good spouse. But you just start stacking your resume up. And it might, look, it might look okay when you compare it to some people around you. But if, like Saul, you compare your righteousness to that of Jesus Christ's, then you'll realize that your righteousness is also not a mountain of righteousness or even an anthill of righteousness. It is a canyon of sheer sinfulness and brokenness. And the only way that you and I will ever have access into heaven or enjoy a relationship with Christ now is if we have nothing on our resume at all except for one word, and that word is Jesus. Jesus. We place no confidence in the flesh. All of our confidence is Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. And Paul goes on in verse 9 to say, and if you're memorizing verses as we go through this series, Philippians 3, 9 is the one to memorize. And be found in him, in Christ. To be found in Christ, watch this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That's the ladder of human achievement. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. This is the gospel of divine accomplishment. The moment we trust that Jesus died on the cross for our sins so we don't have to die in hell for our sins... The moment we trust that Jesus paid the price for our sins, past, present, and future sins, so that in an instant, the Spirit of God enters our heart and we are forgiven and the very righteousness of God and a child of God and heaven bound, at that moment, the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart and 
Now we don't have to worry about upholding the Ten Commandments. What, what was that seventh commandment? What was the fourth commandment? What was the second commandment? But no, because now the Spirit of Christ came into our heart, and he gave, our heart, and He gave us a new heart, and now we love others from the inside out, rather than trying to walk in between lines of laws imposed from the outside in. We have a new heart, and now we can follow Christ from the inside out. And the closer we grow in our relationship with Jesus, then the deeper our love grows for Christ. The closer we grow in our relationship with Christ, the deeper our love grows for one another. And the deeper our love grows for a lost and broken and dying world that still doesn't know Christ. Luke chapter 15, we have an incredible word picture. You can flip there, just start flipping a few books to the left. And you can see in Luke chapter 15, an incredible word picture of two men. And they were both on this ladder of human achievement. They were brothers. The story is called the story of the prodigal son. It's actually not quite accurate. It probably should be called the story of the prodigal sons because there were two prodigal sons in this story. Actually, it should probably be called the father heart of God because it's the heart of God that's broken for both of his prodigal sons. One prodigal son is at the very base of this ladder of human achievement. Maybe he climbed a little bit, but he fell hard, and he was broken. And we see that this younger son was broken at the bottom of the ladder of human achievement, and he was not even considered a man anymore. He was uh, living among swine. He longed to eat their, their food. He was living among the, 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 the swine mud. He had probably spent and squandered his life savings that he very ruthlessly rendered from his dad prematurely. He probably spent it all on prostitutes and gambling. And here he is at the very bottom of this ladder of human achievement, broken. And the other son is at the very top of the ladder of human achievement, of course looking down on his younger brother at the very bottom of the ladder of human achievement, angry, bitter, Everybody looked at the brother at the bottom of the ladder who was broken, and they knew that he wasn't going to be able to access heaven. They knew he was no longer a child of God. That was obvious. But then they looked at the brother who was at the top of this ladder of human achievement, and they were impressed by him. But as far as God was concerned, the brother at the top of the ladder was just as lost as the brother at the bottom of the ladder. Just as lost. Just as deceived. Finally, the brother at the bottom of the ladder, he came to a sense, as Jesus said, and he said, my father has many servants, and the least of the servants live better than me, and I'm dying. I'm going to go back, and he prepared a speech. Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. And he had this whole speech worked out, and he was going to ask to be just one of the lesser servants in his father's household. And so he comes back, and it's a beautiful, beautiful story. In fact, Charles Dickens said this is one of the most beautiful stories that was ever written. He said when this younger son was coming back, the the father sees the son a long ways off, and he runs to him, and this is a picture of the father heart of God, and he embraces him. And I think maybe my very favorite verse in all of Scripture is the father never stops kissing the son. He never stops kissing him. And then the son begins his speech, and his speech was, Dad, I'm not worthy to, to, to be a servant. I've sinned against, and the father cuts him off. He stops kissing him, and he cuts him off, and he says, there's no time for that. Quick, quick. He says, bring a robe, the best robe, and put it on him. Do you know what the best robe represents? The best robe represents the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. 
He never stopped kissing him. Do you want to know what this represents? It represents the moment we leave this ladder of human achievement and we turn to the cross of divine accomplishment. At that moment, God never stops kissing us. His arms are open wide. There's no questions asked. He's simply saying, welcome home, welcome home. And then he says, quick, put the best robe around him. This is the very righteousness of God. You see, salvation isn't just a one-sided coin. Our sins are forgiven. Salvation is a two-sided coin. Actually, it's multifaceted. But one very important side of salvation is not only that we're forgiven, but we become the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That means we're not just as righteous as Billy Graham. We're not just as righteous as Mother Teresa. We are as righteous and holy as Jesus Christ himself. This is the gift of salvation. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit in us. This is how we know that we are going into heaven. Not because we deserve it, because if we don't go into heaven clothed in the very righteousness of God, we don't go in at all. No human righteousness will ever earn their way into heaven. It is only by the very righteousness of God, the gift of placing our faith in the cross of divine accomplishment. We are forgiven. We are clothed with the best robe. That's the righteousness of God. The Father says, quick, put a ring on his hand. This means sonship. This means we boldly enter the throne room of God and make our requests known, knowing that what goes up in prayer, even if it feels feeble, will come down with power and authority, but not because of human achievement, but because of divine accomplishment. And we're placing our faith in the Christ, in in the cross of Christ. And then he says, put shoes on his feet. This means that we have purpose here. We have a relationship with God, and we're going after broken souls. And then he says, eat and celebrate. And this symbolizes that from this point on, when we place our faith in what God has done for us, it's not about religion. It's about a celebration. It's about a joyful relationship that we get to have with God for the rest of our lives that continues on into eternity. And if this story ended there, it would be such a happy story. But this is rather, I think, a tragic story because it continues. They have a huge celebration inside the house. And the older son, who is at the top of the ladder of religious achievement and human achievement, he's at the house, he's angry, he's bitter. And the dad goes up to the older brother and says, come in, your son is home. And do you want to know what the son does? He pulls out his resume. And he holds it up in his dad's face. And he says, look at all that I've done. And I've never been treated like this. And the dad says, son, we've always been fellowshipping. Everything I've had has always been yours. And so in closing, have you been deceived by this doctrine of human achievement? as testified by perhaps the pride in your heart, like the brother at the top of the ladder, or as testified by the guilt and the anxiety in your heart, like the brother at the bottom of the ladder before his repentance? Or have you placed your confidence in the cross of divine accomplishment, what Christ has done for you? The whole book of Galatians would be a great spinoff series right here and now because the fact of the matter is, That Christ not only saves us, Christ sustains us. We no more hold our salvation up after we are saved than, than we save ourselves to begin with. It's Christ who works within us 
the will and to work according to his good pleasure. And so if you're being defeated, if you are a Christian and you're being defeated in your Christian journey, I would dare say, whether it's because of guilt, because of its prayerlessness, because you don't enjoy your relationship with God, because uh, you kind of crawl in here on your hands and knees to worship rather than celebrating the God who saved you and redeemed you, if, if you're really struggling and if you're really anemic in your Christian faith, perhaps you don't have a brokenness for lost people around you, maybe you're saved, but, 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 but you're not a saint with momentum. You're not a saint with joy. You're not overcoming. You're a saint who, like a dog, returns to it, vomit, continues to return to your folly and sin. If this is the caliber of your Christian lifestyle, I would dare say that you've begun placing confidence in the ladder of human achievement once again. I'm not saying you've lost your salvation. I'm just saying you've lost your joy as a Christian, and you've lost your power and authority as a Christian, and you need to repent of this ladder of human achievement and place your faith in the cross of Christ's divine accomplishment and let his grace and mercy wash all over you again so that every day is a celebration in your relationship with Christ. And that does something to your heart that deepens your love for Christ, the body of Christ, and a lost and broken world. So would you stand with me, please? Believe me, it is no small sin. It is no small sin to, to, uh, to divert your focus from the cross of Christ to your own ladder. It is no small sin at all. In fact, if you would just bow your heads with me, please. I wonder if some of you, maybe you need to get saved to begin with. Perhaps your entire life you've been trying to add to this, this resume of, of, of human achievement. And Paul said, it's nothing, it's rubbish. In another place, he said, he said, it's dung. Anything I've ever accomplished is dung. Nothing matters except for what Christ accomplished for me on the cross. That's the only thing that matters for any of us. And perhaps you've been trusting in yourself. And it's time you just repent of that and you trust in what Christ has done for you on the cross. And you need to be born again. So I just want you to bow your heads with me and just pray in an audible voice. Oh, God, I know that I've sinned. I know that I'm a sinner. And I confess like Paul realized that my resume is not a mountain of righteousness. It's not even an anthill of righteousness. It is a canyon of sinfulness and brokenness. I acknowledge that. And I can't save myself. So I repent of the doctrine of human achievement. And I place my confidence in the cross of Christ. And that alone. So that my resume has one word. Jesus. Jesus died for me. Jesus rose for me. Jesus saved me. Jesus redeemed me. I belong to Jesus. And that is my salvation. And perhaps you're a Christian and you've been a Christian. And it's time you repent of getting your eyes off of the cross. And if, if, if you have pride, if you have hard-heartedness, if you have judgmentalism, if you have joylessness, if, if worship is just an effort, if you don't have, if your relationship with the Lord has grown cold, then I, I, I dare say that you're focused on this ladder of human achievement and you become skewed by it or you become beat up by it. Repent of that. Focus on Christ's work for you. Oh, he loves you so much he went to the cross for you. 
And if he loves you so much, he went to the cross for you when you were an enemy of the cross and in enmity with God and dead in your transgressions. Now that you're his child, now that you're forgiven, now that you're the righteousness of God, when you return to him, how will he so much more not embrace you and never stop kissing you? Return to Christ. Look at the cross. Look at the blood that was shed. Return. So if you would just, with your heads bowed, if you would just raise your hand, wouldn't testify. You know what? I think I've got my eyes off the cross. I need to return home. Raise your hand high. Yeah. Okay, then I just want to invite you to come use this stage as an altar. Pour your heart out to God and say, I'm back. And while you're here, ask him to fill you up with his Holy Spirit to give you a fresh capacity to seek his face and live for him and worship. Okay, let's respond to the Lord. The altars are open.